You're listening to Money and Meaning, unlikely allies building new markets for impact. With your hosts, Lindsay Smalling and Liz Maxwell. Check out our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net. Let's join the conversation. Welcome to Episode 10 of Money and Meaning. For this episode, we wanted to do something a little special. If you're listening to this on the day it's released, October 23rd, 2018, it's the first day of the SOCAP 18 conference in San Francisco. 3,000 people are gathering right now in the Bay Area to talk about the intersection of money and meaning. So in celebration of that, we wanted to do something a little different for the podcast this week. And so we cut together this special episode to give everyone a taste and flavor of the wide variety of bold visions, big picture thinking, sometimes radical perspectives, and global community that come together at the SOCAP flagship event. Of course, this is just a sampling. So in this episode, you'll hear six clips from leaders across the impact investing space that are excerpts from presentations given at the conference over the past several years. Before we dive in, I want to make sure that everyone is aware that the full presentation of each of the speakers that you're going to hear from in a minute is available on our YouTube channel. So YouTube is actually the primary repository that we use for the content that comes out of the conference. And if you search SOCAP on YouTube, you will find hundreds of videos online from the last 10 years of conferences. You can watch amazing speakers from all over the globe presenting across a variety of topics. We'll put the links to the full videos from these clips in the blog post for this episode as well. So if you need a shorthand in tracking them down or want to hear more from these specific amazing speakers, check out socialcapitalmarkets.net slash money and meaning, and the blog will be posted there along with all of our latest podcast episodes. And a reminder that if you like our podcast, please do rate us in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you subscribe and listen to our podcast. But it turns out that ratings really do help us reach a broader audience with this conversation and help more people find it and tune in. Soon, we will be rolling out videos and content from the SOCAP 18 conference itself which Lindsay is going to tell you a little more about right now. So Lindsay, can you tell us some of what you're most excited about for SOCAP 18 this year? And for folks not attending in San Francisco, how can they tune in to the conversation? Thanks, Liz. SOCAP 18 is underway, and we're calling this year the start of the next decade of impact. So last year was our 10-year anniversary, and as we were going into this new decade, I'm really excited about the ways that we're emphasizing the festival atmosphere that SOCAP has always had. It's really a unique event. We're right on the San Francisco Bay, and we have so much content. It's a really overwhelming event, I think, in a good way. But really emphasizing that festival atmosphere, we're bringing in more creativity and performance to the main stage and around the Fort Mason campus. We've redesigned the schedule to allow for more workshops and productive networking, and we have a wider range of themes than ever before. So some of the themes this year, of course, impact investing and meaning are recurring themes that really dominate a lot of our conversations. But going into some more topically specific areas, 
Uh, we have very timely topics around racial equity, around gender in markets. These are obviously very contemporary issues in the news. And then in a more global frame, we have some amazing content around refugees, a large group of indigenous leaders who have come together for a track around indigenous communities. We had some attendees last year who said, let's try to get more Africans to SOCAP to really represent the African voice rather than a Western voice talking about Africa. So we have an amazing Africa track and quite a few entrepreneurs from the continent. A track around circular economy, which is, I think, the leading edge of some of the sustainability, regenerative conversations that are going on. Um, and also some really interesting conversations around blockchain and how that technology is being applied in impact. We also have some that are more for people who are in the deep end of the pool on impact investing. So conversations around blended finance, which are opportunities for large scale deals that address the sustainable development goals, other really ambitious global targets require private capital, public capital, philanthropy dollars, and bringing all of these types of funding together. There's also some really interesting new legislation in the United States that creates opportunity zones, sort of incentivized investment structures in different in every state. And then some conversations around alternative ownership. So these are all a little bit more technical, but there's so much to dig into and SOCAP is a great place to do it. So all of the main stage content, which touches on these themes, is live streamed on our homepage at socialcapitalmarkets.net. On October 23rd through the 26th this week, we'd love for you to be part of that experience following along on social media with the hashtag SOCAP18. You can also watch online, as I mentioned. Thanks, Lindsay. So moving into our first two speakers on the podcast today, Jed Emerson and Mark Bamudi-Joseph have both been part of the SOCAP community for several years. Bamuti is an artist, activist, curator, educator, poet, and playwright, whose bold, poetically-driven work investigates social issues and cultural identity. A 2017 TED Global Fellow, Bamuti graced the cover of several magazines and has been widely recognized as a top innovator and influencer. He currently serves as Chief of Program and Pedagogy at the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts in San Francisco. This excerpt from SOCAP 16 really touches into the meaning aspect of this work and highlights ways impact investors can work with artist entrepreneurs, organizers, and creatives to bring meaning more deeply into the work. Before that, we'll hear from Jed Emerson, a pioneer in the field of blended value and someone who was part of the very first SOCAP conference 11 years ago. Jed Emerson is an internationally recognized thought leader with impact investing and social entrepreneurship, navigating the blend of economic, social, and environmental value creation and stewardship. This clip on impact resistance is from SOCAP 17, which was the first global flagship gathering after the 2016 U.S. elections. Together, Jed and Bamuti will remind us of the two pillars of this podcast and foundation of the SOCAP community, money and meaning. While I offer you the words and reflections of our wisdom traditions to give us all guidance, let me come back to what brings us here, together to this church of the new capital. 
What brings us together is our shared exploration of the purpose of capital. I frame ours as a dialogue on the purpose of capital because while we fly various flags of impact investing, socially responsible investing, sustainable finance, and so on, we stand together under an alternative banner of our shared understanding of capital's ultimate and true purpose, a social, moral, and ethical purpose as, exposed, as opposed to the exclusively economic purpose many wrongly assume it to be. We stand together to advance an alternative to traditional investing, to promote capital as a form of impact resistance that goes to the heart of our definition of the purpose of capital. I raise this question with you in the context of resistance because I think we as a community have grown lazy in our understanding of the purpose of capital. In many of our field's recent discussions, we have come to focus too much on impact investing as a means of creating some new form of financial investing, as opposed to its promise as a vehicle for advancing economic performance together with social change and real environmental sustainability. We think of it too often as simply some form of new investment practice and reflect too little on its potential as a tool of resistance against the practices of mainstream financial capitalism, much less our world's current drift toward authoritarianism and a dystopian future. In so doing, we're at risk of taking the lowest path to the nearest point, as opposed to the highest path to a potentially much greater destination. Last year, speaking from this stage, I emphasized the need for us to step back from our discussions of the how of impact investing, the best structures, the best metrics, how to raise the biggest funds, in order to reconnect with our understanding of this deeper question of why. Why are we doing this? What are our core motivations and intent? Where is it we're truly trying to go? Those who are attracted to the practice of impact investing are by nature smart individuals drawn to the notion that investing should be more than simply increasing one's wealth, but must also include consideration of various other social and environmental aspects of capital investment, return, and portfolio performance. However, for many of us, the question of why we are investing with this intent has come to be rapidly answered in an interchangeable set of seemingly self-evident responses. To do well and good, to align money and mission, to respond to climate change. These are not in and of themselves bad answers, but they are light responses to what are fundamentally deep and profound questions of personal and social meaning and purpose. They are responses to the why question posed with a lowercase w. They require no further reflection or consideration. They are the easy, off-the-cuff responses one would expect at a cocktail party, or perhaps what one might have heard at the first SOCAP conference 10 years ago. Such responses require no shift on our part or fundamentally new thinking. They require no real profound critique of current practices within financial capitalism, nor do they require real change in our own behavior, aside from adding a few funds to our portfolio or augmenting a reporting process there. Light responses to the purpose of capital do not require us to reconsider our own fundamental assumptions or understandings concerning the meaning of money, the true purpose of capital, or the real impacts of our investment practice regardless of our intent and good wishes. I would suggest, ladies and gentlemen, that if we focus constantly upon how to do our work as opposed to why we are doing it, 
we will become truly competent at our labors while lacking all comprehension as to their fundamental meaning, potential, and yes, purpose. The danger is that we will build a house that once completed, we will not want to occupy. Let me be clear. This is a very challenging dialogue in which to engage, and there are a variety of outcomes we may each embrace as we have that dialogue. I'm not here to tell you what your understanding of the purpose of capital should be, nor am I interested in trying to convince you that my perspective is correct. I would simply submit to you that from my own personal perspective, the purpose of capital is to be applied as a fuel for freedom, to fund disruption of the social and economic status quo, to be a tool of resistance. Otherwise, it is simply capital as economics and traditional finance. Our definitions of impact may be as diverse as the asset classes and investment instruments we cleverly devise, and impact does look different across different asset classes. But regardless of the asset class or the nature of impact generated, we must be laser-focused upon impact as change and not accommodation. My name is Bamuti. I uh, design and manage creative incubators for social change. Sometimes that means being commissioned by the Guggenheim Museum to orchestrate sports and culture clinics for immigrant youth. Sometimes that means curating international performance at Yerba Buena Center for the Arts. And sometimes that means producing environmental festivals in under-resourced parks around the country. Um, my skill, I think, is in asking interesting and sometimes socially incongruous groups of people provocative questions. Mm. The right question can drive my work as an opera librettist for stage or as a community organizer in the town. My culture making is inquiry driven. What you're seeing are images from a festival called Life is Living, which to the naked eye looks like an eco hip hop festival in the hood, but it's actually an excuse to engage disparate community members and organizations um, and give them the opportunity to publicly respond to a single question. Um, and that question is what sustains life in your community? The answers are sometimes rooted in environmental sustainability, but they often veer towards the colloquial and the absurd. Uh, Frenchie's Chicken Shack sustains life in Houston, just like Beyonce does. Uh, <laughs> City Slicker Farms sustains life in Oakland, like Urban Relief. B-Boys sustain life in New York, like the Sustainable South Bronx. Life is Living is your prototypical community collaborative disguised as a get down in the park. So my story is this. I don't really trust art that doesn't bleed or sweat or cry. I imagine that my kids might live in a time when the most valuable commodities are fresh water and empathy. Mm -hmm. I love pretty dances and majestic sculpture as much as the next person, but give me something else to go with it. Lift me up with the aesthetic sublime and give me the tools to redeem that inspiration. Mm -hmm. I'm really lucky. I sit at a perch that's both administrative and iterative. In the last five years, I've made works for the Atlanta Ballet, the Chautauqua Symphony, the Opera Philadelphia. And in the same time period, I've been employed by an art center that expresses the same values that my art gets made from. Inquiry, collaboration, mm -hmm. aesthetics, mm -hmm. and impact. Mm -hmm. My title 
uh, chief of program and pedagogy, which is what happens when poets get to name themselves. Um, <laughs> it reflects as much. It suggests what I hope becomes an emergent truth for you all as you leave this conference. I hope that you don't expect artists to go off in isolation and be like weird or creative on artist island or whatever, and then come back from that island with bushfuls of transformation for us to pick and eat and be changed by. My story is that of an artist with an integrated practice of collaboration who in turn has been integrated into the true leadership of an institution, which in turn is taking civic leadership by thoughtfully and skillfully designing a structure for thinking and building creative partnerships. The people that are smart about this stuff call it social practice, but I say, let's just do what it takes. Thanks for your time. The next two clips speak more to the global perspective at SOCAP. Hunter Levins shares her urgency and hope on climate change, and Prince Emmanuel de Marode gives a glimpse into his life's work in Virunga National Park in Congo. Hunter Levins is president of Natural Capitalism Solutions, an organization that educates senior decision makers in business, government, and civil society about how to implement more regenerative practices profitably. Levins, who was once named a hero of the planet by Time Magazine, is also a professor of sustainable management at Bard MBA and founding partner of Change Finance, which debuted the first 100% fossil-free ETF on the New York Stock Exchange in 2017. And taking us across the world in this SOCAP 15 presentation, Prince Emmanuel de Marode, Chief Warden of Virunga National Park, shares his story of working to protect mountain gorillas in eastern Congo and how this mission evolved into managing a deeply troubled political situation. The challenges he and his team faced led them to develop the Virunga Alliance, dedicated to upholding the needs and rights of the most vulnerable through social and financial innovation. And I'll add that Prince Emmanuel's presentation got one of the most enthusiastic standing ovations that we've ever seen at SOCAP 15. I drive a leaf, I have solar on the ranch, batteries in the garage. It's just a better way to live. And we can roll climate change backward over the next 30 years if we use practices like Alan Savory's regenerative grazing, which takes carbon out of the air, puts it into the grass as it's photosynthesizing. Cow eats the grass, the roots slough polysaccharide sugars which feed the biological community in the soil and mineralize the carbon that the grass is putting into the soil. We have all the technologies. Why aren't we doing this? And you've been saying that message for dozens of years now. Do you feel like uh, that message is getting through? What feels different today than when you started having these conversations? There are a number of things that are different. <laughs> One, this horse race with catastrophe. Catastrophe is becoming really obvious to a lot of people. Of all the Category 5 hurricanes to make landfall, a quarter were within the last two months. The, the fires, and we've had fires this entire summer. 
the damages are becoming manifest to all of us. And at the same time, the entrepreneurs are succeeding. So what is it about launching this ETF? What does that mean for the industry? The Change Finance ETF is 100 of the biggest companies on Wall Street that are companies that our rule set has picked to exclude all the bad actors. These are, these are publicly traded companies, but they are driving the change that we need to see. And if you watch what the big companies are doing, one after another after another are announcing. Things like Mars just announced a billion dollars that they're putting into climate protection. The work of Unilever, the, their purpose-driven brands are responsible for 60% of the company's profitability. They're only a small piece of all of their brands, and they're growing twice as fast as the rest of the company. We have the opportunity to transform finance, which is the mother of all human systems. It drives trillions of dollars. Let's move money from harm to healing. And what we've done with the CTF is democratize your ability to invest. Young people want the ability to make a personal difference. They want to work for a company that's clean. They want to transform the world. So let's do it. You're listening to Money and Meaning. Find out more about SOCAP conferences, events, and digital ways to connect to the impact investing community at socialcapitalmarkets.net. My day came um, on, a, on, a, on a warm day in April um, when, I, um, when I submitted the report um, on the, the investigation into the illegal oil to the state prosecutor, this investigation that we've been carrying out for, for four years um, into the illegal um, exploration for oil. Um, I believed, as I, I still do now, in my naivety, that um, there is something about the, the sanctity of the rule of law, what, you know, what holds society together. And I submitted this report. Um, as I was coming back, um, five men um, were waiting for me um, in the forest. Um, and they shot me in the, in the chest and in the stomach and left me in the forest. Um, it was two young Congolese farmers who, who saw this happen. Um, and as I was um, alone in, in the forest, they, they came and picked me up and put me on a, on a motorbike um, and for two hours managed to get me to this local hospital um, who performed a, a miracle um, that enabled me to go back to my work um, and to really rethink what, what we were doing. Um, and really what that, what that came to was this idea that we were just too small, um, too vulnerable, too weak to really confront these big problems that we were facing. Um, and this idea of the Virunga Alliance, of drawing in other players based on certain values, values to do with upholding the needs and the rights of the most vulnerable and the poorest in society, um, of um, upholding the needs and the rights of future generations, um, the whole concept of sustainability, um, and, of course, of upholding the rule of law, the, 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 the rules that hold our societies together. Um, and, but we needed the resources, and those resources really focused around three key things, four, four if you include fishing, 
Um, but the first is energy. You know, this, this idea that you need to recreate a whole new industry, a whole new economy um, that is based around diverse, diversification of the economy and that's based around this idea that you've got to break um, the conflict economy um, that has been there for so long. And really, that is, um, um, you know, one of the very great challenges. And it's not that it hasn't been tried. You know, the international community, the world has invested $90 billion in Eastern Congo since, um, since 2000 in trying to put an end to the war. It's the biggest UN mission in the world, and it's failed. And the reason it's failed is because um, of the whole demobilization of the armed militias. Where we are, there are between five and 8,000 of them. It's not that much. It shouldn't be insurmountable. Um, but the, the demobilization, disarmament, and reintegration process has failed because of the R in that acronym, the reintegration. Um, and that has failed because there are no jobs in Eastern Congo. There's 70, 80% unemployment. And really the answer lies in the kinds of work that people like yourselves are doing, um, of creating successful enterprise that can create sustainable livelihoods for those people. Um, and so we looked at those resources that can provide that. And there's, there's water, the two untapped resources of Congo, water um, and the human resources. And, you know, what can we do with that to turn this economy around? Um, the others, of course, are agribusiness and tourism, the traditional industry for a national park. Um, and we invested massively in that. It's not, perhaps not massively by, by your standards, but for us it was a lot. You know, we've, we've now reached an investment, you know, committed funds of about $92 million um, to try and get sustainable energy to these, to these communities. And what we discovered is that in doing that, for every megawatt of electricity that you provide to conflict-affected communities, you can create between 800 and 1,000 jobs. Um, and the, the research that we did in the early days demonstrated that we could create between 100 and 120 megawatts. That's 80 to 100,000 jobs in the community around the park. And we're well, under, we're not well on our way now. Um, the, um, you know, we, we, we've now got the committed funds for 50 megawatts. We're halfway there. But um, if you remember the figure, five to 8,000 militias, that's five to 8% um, of those jobs that we're in the process of creating. Um, and so really that's, that's the answer. Um, and it, it lies right at the heart of the kinds of work that, that you are doing. Um, you know, one, one example is the soap factory. Um, that we that has invested um, in Eastern Congo because of the fact that there's electricity and because of the fact that the park is bringing a degree of stability to that region. The soap factory has created 400 jobs. It's a, it's a $5 million investment. Five million jo uh, 400 jobs in a, in a conflict-affected community. But it's also increased the revenue for 10,000 farmers and it's decreased the price of soap for 5 million Congolese consumers. Um, and so really, that's, that's the answer to conflict. It's a much smaller investment than the 90 billion um, from the public sector. And it really comes from the kinds of ideas that people like yourself are, are, are developing today. So really, that's why I came, was just to, to thank you um, for these amazing ideas and for this amazing work that you're doing. Thank you very much. 
These final two clips take us deeper into what it means to truly do this work by asking us to explore the ways we do or don't confront historical prejudice, together speak truth and challenge existing power structures and assumptions, all while building allies and deepening our relationship to each other along the way. Davida Davison, a native of Detroit and granddaughter of a preacher, lived almost 19 years in New York before moving back to her hometown of Detroit in 2012. Her work with Food Lab Detroit sees good food entrepreneurship as a way to build power and resilience for traditionally marginalized people and communities and promote environmental sustainability through business practices and civic engagement by entrepreneurs. Davida's passionate storytelling tells us the true story of hot chicken, shining a light on cultural appropriation and the barriers to success that minority entrepreneurs often face while changing the narrative of who is at the center of food innovation, resiliency, and success in the business community. Erin Tanaka is a Boston-based community organizer, grant maker, and impact investor. As the director of the Center for Economic Democracy, Erin stewards funding and technical assistance to grassroots groups that build power and vision in low-income communities of color for a new economy. As the director of the Center for Economic Democracy, Aaron stewards funding and technical assistance to grassroots groups that build power and vision in low-income communities of color for a new economy. In this clip from SOCAP 15, Aaron reminds us that we may come at this work with differing approaches, but if we want to go far, we must go together. The website describes it as thus, a spicy bird with a savory burn. KFC's latest creation was inspired by one of Memphis's most famous dishes. Andre Priest Jeffries, queen mother and owner of Prince's Hot Chicken Shack is quoted as saying, have mercy Jesus. It really has come full circle, hasn't it? Since my great uncle, James Thornton Prince, was approached decades ago by Kentucky Fried Chicken looking to buy his recipe. Ladies and gentlemen, at this point, at this starting point, I am going to use hot chicken as a springboard for us to have a conversation this morning about race, entrepreneurship, and cultural appropriation. Less than a month ago, Food Republic published this article and said, meet the man who launched the Nashville's hot chicken craze. What? Meet the man who launched hot chicken? They're giving the credit to John Lasseter for launching hot chicken? Okay, so let's, this is the man who launched hot chicken. This is what, this is what they say. So this is, this is my problem, right? Because the question of who gets credit for a cuisine and how they are compensated and, and honored is a question that comes up time and time in the food community. The article goes on to say, Princess Hot Chicken may have created hot chicken in the 1930s, but, Hattie B's in Nashville has made hot chicken cool. Oh, okay. So let's have a conversation now about cultural appropriation. Specifically, how does one become the face of somebody else's culture creation? Let's talk about that. Now, let's be clear. I don't want to assert that there is anything around Hattie B's making chicken cool again. And I think where the article did not do justice is the article did not indicate 
how John became the face of, of Hattie B's and Hot Chicken and the business model that was created where you tend to see white men at the forefront, particularly in the restaurant industry. First things first, location, location, location. He was able to purchase a place in a bustling neighborhood and community. The second thing, John is a culinary chef who graduated from the French Culinary Institute in New York City. He was also honored by Forbes magazine, Food and Wine magazine as a top chef. He was also honored by Eater magazine. Now, I don't know about y'all, but not too many African-Americans have the opportunity to get this type of exposure. Branding, marketing, PR. They put big bucks behind the Hattie B's brand and the team. John had the foresight or the money or the resources to hire the man who opened up Morrison's all over the South. He hired him to be a part of his team. That was important. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is why I do the work that I do at Food Lab Detroit, because this is my thing. If we're going to have food used as culture creators, then black folks who created that food need to be at the center and they need to be driving it. So that is what we do at Food Lab Detroit. We support over 200 locally owned African-American low-income entrepreneurs to help them grow and scale their business. Businesses like Detroit Vegan Soul, because if healthy food access is a problem, if diabetes is a problem, then guess what? Especially in the African-American community, don't you think it should be an African-American then entrepreneur creating a vegan place that it also solves the problem about healthy food access? I think so. Here's the thing. Remember what I told you about Hot Chicken Takeover? Hot Chicken Takeover just got VC investment to spur their expansion. What? All my investors in the room, you all can do this. You all are doing this, but you cannot continue to ignore those minority entrepreneurs that are in the community who have wonderful and great ideas as well. You have to find them. You have to connect with them. If you all can find Hot Chicken Takeover and invest in his business to expand, then tell me why Princess can't get money to expand her business as well. But when she was asked, Andrea Prince Jeffrey said this about this hot chicken now, second wave, plethora of restaurants all opening all over the world. She said this, my customers, they try all these different places. They're popping up, she says, but they come right back here. Might take them a while, but they come back to the real thing. They tell me all the time, you still got it. Of course, that makes me feel good, have mercy. Her only question she insists now is, which family member is going to take over the restaurant next? Thank you. You're listening to Money and Meaning. I'm Lindsay Smalling, and you can find out more about the SOCAP Conference, SOCAP 365, and sign up for our newsletter at socialcapitalmarkets.net. This speaks to me uh, what some of the possibilities that are available to us as private investors as we start to think out of the box and ask ourselves what role we're playing in the broader ecosystem to help leverage and engage community members to help determine their own economic destiny. And at the same time, I've started to ask the question, although I see the benefits and the possibilities of what we can do with private capital, uh, through our new organization, the Center for Economic Democracy, have been asking the question, is that enough? This is something that I want to raise to you all. Um, and this might not be super popular, but as one fund manager to many others, in the community organizing world, we have an ethic that says our goal and our job is to put ourselves out of work. That is, if we're doing strong leadership development, we're helping build transformative policies, that the role of professional community organizers shouldn't be necessary, and in fact, communities can take that role and build their own power. I want to ask the question to us, as people who are playing this role in finance capital, what is our conception of our direction? 
What is our ethics as people who control all the capital that Brendan is talking about? It's my belief that we have the possibility to be transformative in our terms. This is something that many of us are talking about. But I also want to raise the question, what role are we playing in democratizing the decision-making to set those terms in the first place? Right now, I think many of us think of ourselves as benevolent, almost philanthropists who are using favorable, low-interest terms to help spark economic development. However, in Boston, with the Center for Economic Democracy, we're starting to raise the question of what does it look like to give everyday people the power to make decisions on the allocation of their own finance capital. We're taking this question of how do you take participatory budgeting, which has been a process that's been used across the world to allocate uh, municipal tax dollars, and instead start to apply this very same process, where we say we believe in your capacity to make good decisions and believe in the truth that you know what's best for your own community. And from that standpoint, our goal and our question for ourselves is how do we devolve our power so that communities can make those same decisions? I often say that um, if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. I hope that together this week, that we decide that we're moving towards the collective liberation of all people. And through this week and the conversations we have, we build that path together. To stay updated on the latest podcasts, conferences, and upcoming events near you, be sure to sign up for our newsletter at socialcapitalmarkets.net. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You've been listening to Money and Meaning, unlikely allies building new markets for impact. With your hosts, Lindsay Smalling and Liz Maxwell. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are heard. To learn more about what you've heard, check out our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net. You can also follow us at SoCap Markets on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening.